Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that covers Swedish history in a chronological way. My name is Chris and a co-host on this crazy journey along with my fellow co-host. Yeah, and that fellow co-host is me, I'm Elsa. How have you been since the last episode, Chris? Uh, fine. It was about pretty much bang on 12 hours ago that we recorded <laughs> the last episode. And since then, I've been to a football match with uh, one of our listeners, Toby. Hi, Toby. Hi, Toby. Surprise shout out. But yes, it was good. First football derby in Stockholm that I went to. Lots yeah. of uh, fireworks and singing and stuff. How about you? I've also been good in the 12 hours since the last episode. I went to help a friend move a chest of drawers and then had lunch. Cool. I think that's about enough information that our listeners would uh, like to hear about our random Sunday. Um, so <laughs> yeah. on with the Swedish phrase, perhaps? Yes. This week's phrase is inget kalas utan kras. That translates to English as no party without something breaking into pieces. And is that literal? You actually aren't allowed to have a party without breaking something? Well, sort of, actually. It means that if you host a gathering, like a party or a dinner, something is bound to be dropped or broken or spilled. The phrase is often used as a way of smoothing over if someone accidentally breaks something. Say you have some friends over and one of them drops a glass and you have to come and mop up the drink and pick up the pieces, then your friend is probably going to be embarrassed. So to smooth it all over, you'd just say, oh well, inget kalas utan kras. Okay, I thought it was going to be more along the lines of you can't make an omelette without cracking some eggs, but it's not that at all. No, no, it's to uh, kind of, yeah, comfort someone who has accidentally broken or spilled something. And now we should probably head back to the middle of the 1430s and catch up with good old Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson, the man who was trying to uh, make the country and the Kalmar Union be a bit crass. <laughs> yeah, as we've seen, displeasure with King Eric has been growing and growing, and in the last episode we saw it kick off for real with Engelbrecht taking the reins. Engelbrecht helped start a rebellion, representing the interest of peasants and traders from the mining region of Sweden, as he wrote to the king to protest against the actions of various local bailiffs and regional rulers imposed on them by the king against their wishes and against the rules laid out when Erik became king of the Kalmar Union. He had been busy appointing foreigners to these positions in Sweden, and now the peasants had had enough once they started enforcing high levels of taxes on them. There's a lot of back and forth about the bailiff in Vesteros, and soon the peasants, led by the charismatic Engelbrecht, started a full-blown rebellion capturing the castle. The revolt spread, and even most members of the Swedish council joined in, making it a perilous moment for Eric. The Swedish church also get involved, angry at the monarch for the same reason, really. He just kept appointing his own men to various roles, including the Archbishop of Uppsala. Whilst helpful, this meant that the revolt started to shift away from its peasant roots and turned into more of a rebellion from the nobility. So things didn't really start very well for the king, and soon the rebellion had their sights set on Erik's strongholds of Stockholm and Kalmar. The two sides met in Stockholm, but no fighting occurred, as both sides realised that maybe negotiations could settle the matter. 
This began and Eric agreed he should really start to rule according to the law, which was a good start. There were changes made to the council and Engelbrecht was even appointed commander-in-chief of the Swedish military to try and force Eric to cooperate. Both sides have agreed to sit down and have another meeting in Stockholm later that summer in 1435. But before we start talking about that, we have to start this episode with a bit of a celebration, and one that's been a long time coming, a really long time coming. Yes, that's because on the 7th of June, it's finally time for the opening of Uppsala Cathedral, which was also a celebration of the return of the Swedish Archbishop, who King Erik had previously wanted to be removed and replaced by one of his own supporters. Yeah, so the Swedish church are happy they've got their candidate for Archbishop back, and it's amazing considering the building works began in the 1200s, so there's definitely cause to celebrate that it's finally done. Do you remember when it all went wrong and they had to call in that French master mason all the way from Paris to fix it all? So it's been through a lot of tough times at Uppsala Cathedral. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It might have taken them a fair while to build it, but to be kind to them, they built something durable because the cathedral still stands today. It does, and it's well worth a visit, but it's not all party-party for the people in Uppsala. Since most of the influential people in Sweden are present, they also use the time to conduct some political deliberation at a council session. They issue a proclamation that says all Swedes in the service of foreigners in the country, so that could be people working for the foreign bailiffs that remain in Castle's Lord to the King, should leave their position within 14 days and instead serve the kingdom so that with the help of God and St. Eric, it may return to its rightful freedom and dignity. And this really pushes Eric's hand some more to make sure he really does remove those foreign bailiffs, because if he doesn't, they're not going to have any staff working for them. It's interesting that they mention St. Eric. Uh, he seems to have been a real symbol for the rebels. The very religious king that ruled Sweden in the 1100s seems to symbolize a time of Swedishness, unlike the present day of Scandinavian unity with the Kalmar Union, but also a time of greater piousness and righteousness. In a way, it's an example of how people have often used history as a means to gain support or invoke the imagery that they want to portray. Whilst in Uppsala, the Swedish council also writes a number of letters to Hansa towns and to the German order, asking them for their assistance against King Eric and promising that in turn they would get reliefs from customs duties. The problem with this offer is that the main trading ports like Kalmar and Stockholm were still held by the king, so they couldn't really follow through with this promise until, you know, they would eventually depose Eric if that's what was going to happen. It also shows you that they aren't exactly hopeful for much success in the Stockholm meeting when they are due to meet Eric, or they could potentially be just looking for more tools to use to pressure Eric into a meaningful deal. Meanwhile, this is a busy time for King Eric. He's actually occupied elsewhere, namely in Vudring's Boy in South Denmark, where he's negotiating with the Hansa towns of Lübeck, Wismar, Lunenberg and Hamburg. These negotiations are eventually successful, and the Hansa also promise to not support the rebelling Swedes. But Eric has to grant the cities an exemption from the tolls their ships would have to pay coming through the Orison Strait. So there's a bit in there for both sides, really, although this is an expensive concession that Eric is making. 
This all means that the king is late to the meeting in Stockholm, which was due to start on the 29th of July. This causes fear and annoyance among the Swedes, who are wondering what the king might be up to, but eventually it's just decided that the meeting should be postponed. And it is to the 8th of September when the king does arrive to Stockholm with 60 ships and 1,600 men. That's, that's a big uh, group of people to travel with. But negotiations can now begin on Helgansholmen, an island just off the island where the actual city was. Yeah, and for those of you familiar with modern-day Stockholm, this is the island where the parliament building is. It's not a big island at all, and it's you, you could throw a tennis ball from that island to Gamlestan, so it's pretty, pretty close. The negotiations are described to have been long and hard. Accusations and counter-accusations are thrown across the hall, and in the partially preserved records of the meeting, there's a long list of all the grievances the Swedes have with the king and what made them rebel in the first place. Engelbrecht is not personally involved in the negotiations, although he is present with his armed men just outside, lending some, well, force to the meeting. In fact, as time goes on, this becomes more and more of a negotiation between the nobility and the king. Those who are used to having and executing power, they gradually take over that role vis-a-vis -vis the king. The tax issues and other things that the peasants disagreed with were almost forgotten in the process. Historians have debated and continue to debate the extent to which this was intentional or not. Did the nobility just ride in on the back of the peasants and then when they'd actually gotten the king to the negotiating table, they kicked them out? Or was this just a natural way to proceed in medieval society that those who were used to ruling assumed that position on behalf of others? After all, the peasants never seemed interested in overthrowing the system of government as such just to make it better for them. Either way, once the negotiations concluded on the 14th of October, the agreement is more or less a confirmation of what had been proclaimed in Halmstad in the spring. Eric will remain king, but promises to do so in accordance with the Swedish landslag, the national law. However, there are some major differences. King Eric clearly held on to his position in the negotiations and was by no means inclined to become a yes-man type king that just agreed to what the Swedes and the Swedish council said. He makes sure that whilst he's not allowed to put foreigners in local power as bailiffs, he can still put people from the Kalmar Union in those positions, which of course includes Danes. And since Eric was gradually favoring Denmark in the Union, he has more people loyal to him there that he could put in these positions in Sweden. He also gets to remain in control of three of the most important Swedish castles, Stockholm, Nyköping and Kalmar, where he is allowed to appoint whoever he likes. So, of course, the king puts Danes in charge immediately after the negotiations have finished. 
The king also makes sure that a special clause is introduced to the agreement that says that he only has to consider, not obey, any decision the Swedish council makes. Yeah, that's pretty clever wording there. And the king is also allowed to rearrange the royal council in Sweden, and he immediately brings the numbers back down to what it was before the rebelling Swedes introduced those 20 new people we saw in the last episode. Engelbrecht and Erik Puke are perhaps unsurprisingly kicked out, and Engelbrecht loses his position as commander-in-chief too. King Erik also ensures he keeps members of the real nobility, like Karl Knutson Bunda, in their positions, and even gives him Engelbrecht's old position as leader of the army. Historian Dick Harrison calls the Helge Armsholmen agreement a failure for the rebelling Swedes. From the point of view of the king, it does seem like he hopes that because he's agreed to some aspects of what they want, things will now move on and he'll still retain most of his powers. But it's not long after the king has sailed off back home to Denmark that discontent starts brewing once more. We have two preserved letters from Karl Knutson Bunda to the king, dated 29th of November and 17th of December, so just a few months later, that say that people are still not happy. The peasants, particularly in Upland, Dalarna, Helsingland and Norland, don't think taxes have been lowered enough. And to make things worse, the council are now locked in arguments with Engelbrecht and Puke, mainly over the latter was right to remain in power at Casterholman Castle, which he'd taken in the uprising. It's interesting to see that again the issue of tax comes back. For the peasants, this seems to really be a bread and butter issue. They don't care what else happens. They want to see less money and goods leave their pockets for the king's coffers, and that's what matters to them. And unlike perhaps some of the other members of the nobility who prioritized other issues, Engelbrecht and Puke are also invested in this issue of lowering taxes and representing the regions where the peasants are still very much unhappy. By the end of the year, the Swedish council sees how untenable the situation is becoming and decides to invite everyone who has been involved in the rebellion to a new meeting in Arboga in January 1336. This rebellion really likes meetings, doesn't it? <laughs> and particularly meetings in Arboga. Yeah, they must have a like sort of block reservation on the hotel there. I did actually read, I think again it was Dick Harrison who was looking into why do they always meet in Arboga? And apparently it had maybe a little bit to do with venue space. Arbilga had, like, I think four big churches with big church halls that they could all gather in. So, yeah, it kind of was conference space that made them go there. That's pretty cool. And before we continue with what happens in the rebellion in 1436, let's just quickly take a sidestep and deal with the other important matter which takes place this year. That's because we finally have a permanent peace treaty on the Schleswig conflict. The war was effectively ended with a temporary ceasefire, but it isn't until now in July 1436 when the final negotiations and treaties are held at Vardingsborg. Eric had previously reached separate agreements with the Hansa towns, who said that they will resume trade and that all pirates working for either side shall be recalled from the sea. Of course, the sound Jews, that toll for passing the Danish castles in the Orison Strait, will remain on the table. 
Negotiations over Schleswig are intense though, and it might be that any ongoing trouble in Sweden is actually doing some good in moving things along. Maybe Eric appreciates that he needs to conclude this thing with Holstein so he, now he can go back and concentrate on Sweden. Uh, we don't know, but that seems to make sense. In the end, what is agreed is that Duke Adolf, by now the only surviving son of Gerhard VI of Holstein, who originally got given Schleswig by Margareta, will get to hold on to the Duchy of Schleswig for the rest of his life and then his heirs will have it, but just for two years. And then it will be handed back to the Danish crown. In return, Holstein will get trade privileges and other benefits within the Nordic kingdoms. So that's it. A war that's lasted 25 years, and that we first talk about back in episode 75, is over. Almost a bit of an anticlimax. It feels like there was... Much ado about nothing, really. The fact that the title goes back to Denmark two years after Adolf's death was a huge victory for Erik, though. Annoyingly, he doesn't get to have it for the moment, but people could die at any time in the Middle Ages. Yeah, so they've just essentially fought for a stalemate and Denmark to get it back eventually. But like we said, that's a, that is a victory for Eric, considering the alternative was him not getting it back. And even though we've discussed it a fair bit in this podcast, we could have talked about this war in much more detail. We've only really covered the broad strokes and, of course, where it relates to Sweden and the Kalmar Union, because it's a more important part of Danish history than the other two countries. But if you are interested in learning more about it, there's a bunch of books about it and articles to read. Um, some of them are in English, most of them are in Danish or in the other Scandinavian languages, but um, there is information out there. Back to Sweden then, and this new second meeting in Arbelga. At first, Karl Knutsson Bunde is the prominent figure at the meeting, but gradually the spotlight moves to Engelbrecht, who once again inflames the crowds with passionate speeches against the king, who he argues hasn't done anything to change or uphold what was agreed at Helgansholmen the previous year. Unfortunately, there are no records preserved from this meeting, so we don't know exactly what happened, but things seem to have become heated quite early on, since already on the 11th of January, the Swedish council, influenced by this fiery meeting, send a letter to the king and the Danish council. This letter is more or less a note that says they're firing King Eric as the monarch of Sweden. Or, well, they give him five weeks to put everything right, agree to all their demands, or they will renounce him as king and reject everything that's been agreed upon in the recent months. Five weeks seems like a fair amount of time, but five weeks in the dead of Scandinavian winter in the 1400s is a ridiculously short period of time to get things done. And it isn't five weeks from when Eric gets the letter, it's five weeks from when they put it in the post. So it will likely take almost those five weeks to reach Eric down in Denmark. And even if he replied on the very same day, it's going to take the same amount of time to come back. So it's essentially, they've written it in a way that Eric can't do anything about it. And this seems to have been their idea all along. This time they want rid of the king properly, but they want to do it in a legitimate way. So they give him a means, although unrealistic, but a means to do something and remain in power. But yeah, makes it impossible for him to actually do anything. That's quite clever, really. 
In the letter, they also give their reasons for wanting to fire Eric. Essentially, they're not pleased with his way of ruling, and since that previous meeting, he's not handed over enough power to the political appointees that they've made and given them the power to effectively rule the country of Sweden. Engelbrecht really seems to be itching to take up arms again, and just a few days after the letter is sent to the king from Arborga, he gathers his peasant forces and heads to Stockholm. Seemingly reluctant to let Engelbrecht take center stage once more, Karl Knudson Bunde joins him, making this very much a joint nobility-peasantry force. They get to Stockholm on the 15th of January and set up camp south of the city. The people in the city have closed the gates and Engelbrecht and Karl Knudson Bunde gather a team to head in to negotiate with the local council. The council says they'll deliberate, but when the German mayors come out to say that, well, actually, they've reached the decision that they won't let the Swedish forces in, well, then they're simply overpowered and the Swedes charge the town gates. Yeah, and most of the regular people of Stockholm are happy to join the rebelling forces, actually, and they help open the gates and let the attacking forces in. It helps that, once again, Engelbrecht delivers one of his passionate speeches, and pretty soon the rebels' flag is hoisted on the town square, symbolising that they've now taken control of the city. And this is really amazing, because this is only four days after they sent the letter to Eric, so it was really a, a formality, that letter. <laughs> And then, just to be on the safe side, the German town councillors are deposed and replaced by Swedes. Yeah, but they're not uh, burnt alive in a barn like uh, what happened in the Schepplinger Holm murders. No, true. Which is good, because if there's anything that's been the same throughout this rebellion, apart from the taxes, it's the fact that the Swedes don't trust foreigners. But just because Stockholm is taken, that doesn't mean that Stockholm Castle is. No, the castle has essentially locked itself down, and a separate attack on it is instigated by Kalknudsombunde, Puke and two brothers called Nils and Bengt Jönsson Oxenstierna. In fact, it's now time for our main players in this revolt to split up. We don't know if it was decided already in Arboga or if they decide on it now, but Kalknudsombunde and Puke remain in Stockholm to deal with the attack on the castle and generally manage national affairs from there, whilst Engelbrecht gathers his forces and heads out to spread the renewed rebellion in the rest of the country. Yes, Engelbrecht is very much a military man. We've seen that before he commands forces and rallies the crowds, but he's not the one who stays behind to negotiate or deal with affairs long term. And that's what he does now for the rest of the late winter and spring of 1435 in what can be described as a blitzkrieg around Sweden and even into some of the Danish territories. Indeed, there is a real fire lit under Engelbrecht and his forces. Perhaps he's bolstered by the fact that he's re-elected as Hörwitzmann, the commander-in-chief, on the 15th of February, so reinstating him to that position in the council that King Erik had kicked him out of six months earlier. But it wasn't all as happy as that. That's because he is increasingly challenged in his position as figurehead of the revolt by Karl Knudsson Bunde, who is clearly favoured by the nobility, likely because he's one of them, 
and has the personal wealth to recruit soldiers on his own, a fact that greatly annoys Puke, and a growing personal dispute between those two is ongoing as well. In fact, Engelbrecht and Karl Knutsson Bunde actually shares this role of commander, because originally Knutsson Bunde was elected to this role first, in pretty much a landslide win with the nobility siding with him. A sign of increased tension between these two men and the two groups in the rebellion, the peasants then express their anger at this move and force the council to appoint Engelbrecht in this co-commander-in-chief role. So it's quite an interesting solution. It's a classic Swedish uh, compromise. Yeah, but it shows you to what extent the the rebels are now fighting amongst themselves, not with swords and uh, and shields, but with political power, and they're trying to take over the rebellion for one part or the other. And now we're going to do a quick montage of what Engelbrecht gets up to as he rides with his forces across Sweden during this spring and late winter. He actually fails to take the king's most important castle at Nyshoping's house, but orders the locals to put it under siege. And then he does the same thing when he gets to Stegerholm. So he's clearly prioritising covering a lot of ground, rather than staying and personally making sure the job is done in each place. He reaches Kalmar in March, where local nobleman Neil Stenson Natteldag has already put the castle, which the king controls, under siege, but it's also where the locals have been reluctant to join in. From Kalmar, Engelbrecht writes to the Hansa towns, explaining why the Swedes are rebelling again and asking for their support against the king. He then continues south to Blekinge and Halland, which the Swedes actually took control of in 1434, but then handed back to Denmark in 1435. This time, the two counties are quickly occupied by the rebelling Swedes, and as Engelbrecht is about to continue south into Skåne, the local Danish commander at Helsingborg probably sees which way the wind is blowing, and before the two forces even meet in battle, the commander suggests a separate peace, which is agreed on in Tranap in northern Skåne on the 5th of April. So Skåne essentially declares itself neutral. This sounds pretty wise. And Engelbrecht has really been going at lightning speed during this spring, covering over a thousand kilometres on horseback. But outside Axval Castle in Vestigertland, he falls ill. The campaign is halted and Engelbrecht must return with his forces to his home base at Urubru Castle. By the time he gets to Urubru on the 20th of April, he is very unwell and needs to rest. In fact, it's believed that Engelbrecht maybe already had an injury when the revolt began or was born with a handicap because he's often depicted as walking with a cane in images painted of him later in the 1400s and that might be a contributing factor to why he has to put a stop to his campaign so abruptly. Maybe he just thought having a cane was cool. <laughs> true, true. Nonetheless, he seems to get better after a few weeks of rest, and in the end of April, he heads to Stockholm for deliberations with the council, along with his wife and a group of his closest men. In either late April or early May, different accounts give different dates, Engelbrecht and his entourage set up camp overnight near Jörkholm Castle. Jörkholm Castle is owned by lawman and nobleman Bent Stenks and Natteldag, a man we've mentioned briefly previously. 
and shortly after Engelbrecht arrives, so does Bengt's son, the young nobleman Magnus Benson, that or dog. And it's possible that Bengt has invited both his son and Engelbrecht to Yerkholm to discuss a dispute the two seem to have had over some family estates. Nothing to do with the rebellion, but something totally private between the two. And what we do know is that when Magnus arrives, he brings his own small force of men with him on ships that moor on the shores of the lake there. Magnus walks up to Engelbrecht and the two are seen to exchange a few words. Engelbrecht even seems to welcome Magnus, but then the situation escalates and an argument breaks out. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Magnus gets out an axe and just goes for Engelbrecht. What? Yep. And the first blow hits Engelbrecht's hand as he tries to block this blow and and it takes three of his fingers off. But Magnus isn't going to stop and hacks at him again. And this time he hits Engelbrecht's neck before dealing a third and final blow to his head that cracks his skull in half. That means he's dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that came out of nowhere. What a murder. And in the middle of an ongoing national revolt against the king. Just like that, the main figure of the revolt gets his head chopped in half. Yeah, and like in any good drama series, uh, I think that might be a good cliffhanger to end the episode there. Sure, that's a great idea. We pick up right here in two weeks' time to see what happens to the revolt now that the main man has got his head in two pieces. Yeah, we'll pick up the story here as someone is picking up the two pieces of Engelbrecht's head. <laughs> and we can see that, that while they're busy picking up his head, they're also going to be picking up the pieces of this revolt, because we've certainly not seen the end of the tumultuous times in Sweden just yet, and the problems for King Eric and the Kalmar Union won't end with his death either. Before we conclude the episode, though, it's worth just briefly reflecting on Engelbrecht's role in the revolt that bears his name. He was no doubt one of the main figures, and his ability to command troops and rally the masses made the rebellion what it was, both in terms of popular support and in terms of numbers that could be raised to fight against the king. He's one of the first real figures we've seen who is capable of giving great speeches and use his skills of persuasion to a great effect. Yeah, he's definitely brought both quality in terms of his military leadership and propaganda abilities and quantity in terms of his ability to unite a load of peasants and enable them to rise up. As we mentioned, there's debate amongst historians to what extent this was a peasant revolt hijacked by the nobility, or if it was a revolt by the nobility against the king that the peasants were just able to tag their issues onto. There are arguments in favour on both sides, and it was most likely a bit of both. On one end of the spectrum, the peasant side of the revolt has even been given communist-esque features by some historians. The peasants certainly had their grievances with the king, mainly the high taxes and the unruly bailiffs, that's for sure. The nobility had theirs though, and the church had their own, but what made this a special revolt was the fact that they all united as one, and part of why they were able to unite was because of a man like Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson, who had this sort of feet in both camps. He was part of this nobility that went around uh, dealing with mining and stuff, but he wasn't part of the high nobility that dealt with landed estates and castles. So he, yeah, he was had a feet in both camps. 
Indeed, and Engelbrecht very much became a martyr for the cause in his own time. Like with so many historical figures, his status was almost made better by the fact that he was murdered. Sure, it was in a private dispute and not by the evil king that he fought, but still, he could be argued to have died for the cause, or at least his followers made sure that that's how it was portrayed. Definitely. He certainly became an icon and a hero in his own time, not just now. There was almost a little cult following around him, with people who claimed that miracles occurred near his grave. A few decades after his death, the Engelbrecht Chronicle was written, which details his life and deeds in an unsurprisingly favourable light. His cult status was then renewed as Sweden moved to democracy in the late 19th and 20th century, when early social democrats began looking at Engelbrecht as a man of the people who had gathered the masses and risen up against the tyranny of a king, although it can be debated to what extent he was actually a man of the people, considering he was, like Chris said, a member of this local nobility in Bergslagen after all. He also sided with the nobility on occasion and wasn't really interested in making any major changes to the ideas and the system that ran the country. This is again an example of how history is used to rally people around the idea of a common past. It's interesting to see how that returns over and over again. Engelbrecht and his followers use Saint Eric the King as a historical figure to unite around, and then hundreds of years later, they were themselves used for the same purpose. So it's uh, just a rolling stone that keeps going. Very true. But what will happen to the Swedish rebellion now? Will the death of Engelbrecht be a rallying cry and unite the separate factions that exist? Or will it just make things worse? After all, the most charismatic standard bearer is now dead. Does this mean that Karl Knutsson Bunde will be in charge of everything? But what about Puke too? There's a lot of things still in, up in the air now, so we'll have to wait and see what happens next time. Uh, no spoilers from us right now. Yeah, surprisingly for podcasters, our lips are sealed. But with that, all that remains to say is thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this jam-packed episode of Revolts and Uprisings for the second week in a row and more to come. Yes, and until that next time, uh, you can, as always, check our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we've got a load of sources for what we read about this episode and uh, episode pictures and list of kings and queens. So there's loads of stuff on there. And you can get in touch with us using our email, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com, or find us on social media where we have a Facebook and Twitter page. And uh, do get in touch to let us know what you thought of our special animal episode too. Yes, and get in touch and give us suggestions for future special episodes if you'd like that. If you enjoy the podcast and have a few moments, please consider leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to us on. It helps us get noticed and it brings joy to our hearts. We're approaching 100 reviews or ratings on iTunes, so that's our next milestone right there. Indeed it is, but that's all for now, so take care everyone and see you next time. Hey, Bye-bye.